You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so if you want to grab your Bible, uh, that's where uh, you need to be looking. Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. And while you're turning there, let me just reframe for you uh, the Gospel of Mark. It's 16 chapters. And if you think about the Gospel of Mark in two sections, you've got the first half of it is 1 through 8. The second half is 9 through 16. And each of those two sections of the Gospel of Mark, they're trying to do two different things. They're answering two different questions. And let me just remind you of the question that chapters 1 through 8 is trying to answer for us. Mark, in his first eight chapters, is trying to answer the question, who is this guy Jesus? Like, who is he? And so instantly we're learning things about Jesus from Mark 1 on. We learn things like he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He is the one who can um, heal a leper. He's the one that can heal a paralytic. We're learning all of these sorts of things about Jesus along the way. And now when you get to Mark 4, we're in the last part of Mark 4, when you get there, we're about to learn one more thing, kind of one, laying down one more layer about who Jesus is over what we've learned already. And here's what we're going to see today. We're about to see a picture of the power of Jesus. We're about to see how powerful Jesus is. Mark is trying to teach us today that he's not only the son of God, he's not only the king, but this is like the powerful, dominant ruler of the universe, Jesus. That's what we're seeing here. So we're talking about the power of Jesus. Now let me, let me preface um, the rest of the sermon by saying this. There have been several uh, resources that have been very helpful along the way in studying the, uh, Mark and preparing sermons for Mark. Particularly for this sermon, Tim Keller's book, The King's Cross, was, was really, really helpful. So I'd refer you to that. If, if you're just kind of studying along with us, that would be a great thing to study kind of parallel with us um, as we're studying through Mark. So the power of Jesus. Let me give you four things that we learn in this passage about the power of Jesus. Here's the first one. Number one thing we learn about the power of Jesus. Number one is that this, this man, that his power, this power is real. This man has a real power. That when we're talking Jesus here, this is not, you know, a make-believe legend sort of a moment, but this is like real, authentic, raw power that we're seeing. So uh, read along here with me, starting in verse 35, Mark 4, 35. And I want to point out to you some things that I think are really funny about this story. Okay, so uh, start with me here. Verse 35 says this. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. And then it says this, just as he was. Now, it's just a funny detail. I can add nothing to the plot or to, to, you know, to the advancement of the story. Mark just remembers something and he puts it in there. And he went as he was. Like in other words, Mark is letting us know here that Jesus didn't freshen up before he got in the boat. I just think that's kind of funny. He, he didn't shave. He didn't put on some, he, he just went as he was. Now keep going here. We've got another one, the next phrase. So he just says, and you know, he came just as he was. And then the next phrase says this, and other boats were with him. Okay, it didn't add anything to the story, but Marcus wants us to know randomly that you've got other boats that as they are kind of going on their boat are around them. So he just adds these 
random details into the story. So we've got Jesus, you know, unshaven. We've got Jesus with other boats around their boat. And then keep reading here. Some other, these are really comical. At verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Verse 38, but he, and we're talking about Jesus, but he, like they're answering the question like, where was Jesus while this was going on? Well, verse, or verse 38, but he was in the stern. So he wants us to know that they, he was down, you know, in the boat, at the back of the boat, in the stern, and asleep on a cushion. Great, he's asleep on a— If you've ever wondered if Jesus was pro-pillows or not, here's your answer. <laughs> if, if you like pillows, Jesus is right there with you. When he sleeps, he wants a pillow too. It's, it's, there's these random details that flood into this story. Now the question is why? They don't add anything to the plot of the story. They don't advance the story at all. So why are they there? So let me try to give you a quick answer to that. A guy named Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he examines the characteristics of eyewitness accounts. Like what is it that, that is the defining marks of like when a person is recounting a story that they have seen like right in front of them, what are the defining marks of that eyewitness account? And here's one of the things he talks about as a defining mark of an eyewitness, you know, moment where they're recounting a story is random details. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That, that part of what makes an eyewitness account an eyewitness account is that it's got random details. And you know this, if you've heard somebody tell a story about something that happened, you know, at their day of work, and they're telling about this person that's doing that, and they add like that detail, uh, and they were wearing a brown shirt. Well, like, we didn't ask, I mean, it adds nothing to the story. We didn't ask, it's just they remembered it and they saw it. This is one of the defining marks about an account being an eyewitness account. Now, let me put one caveat in there. Over the last 200 years, modern fiction has changed to where now modern fiction will actually try to, to present itself like an eyewitness account. So it will give random details in the story that don't advance the plot. It'll give those random details to make it feel like an eyewitness account. But legends, fictional, you know, stories for the last, all history, as long as they've been being written, those, those fictional stories did not contain those. They only contain the things that advance the plot where the eyewitness account has the random details in it. Okay, now let me, let me push pause here and, and, and address this. We live in a cultural climate that when it looks at the Bible, I think this is the general feel that a lot of people have. You know, there's some inspiring stories in there. There's some good stories, man, stories that make you feel good, some life lessons you can learn, but, but they're really not like real. Like they're, they're great stories, but they're more like legend or more like fictional stories. They're not, they're not like real, like actually happened stories. And you may be a person that, that has that sort of a view on the Bible. That when you think about it, it's, it's more of a, you know, I appreciate it, but I, I don't really think that those stories actually happened. Okay, so let me just address that really quickly by saying this. Part of why we get these random details in here is it's authenticating that this actually happened. Like if these were legends, if, if these were fictional stories, there's really two problems with that, mainly how the Gospels were written. And one problem with how the Gospels were written, if you think it's a fictional account or a legend, is that they were written way too early to be a legend. Like if you're going to make up stories about a person that existed, 
then you're going to have to wait till all those people died that saw him that were around him before you make up your stories. Or you're going to have a whole like a line of people telling you that you were wrong. So they were written way too early, one. But secondly, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about the life of Jesus contain way too many minute and random details. Like minute and random details that fiction doesn't have, that legends don't have, that only eyewitness accounts have. So if you believe that like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are fictional kind of legendary accounts, here's what you have to believe. That Mark, with no like no no predecessor like before him, no successor after him, anticipated what modern fiction would be like 2,000 years later. He came up with modern fiction, how we would write it now, without any predecessor, without any successor after him. That he just somehow came up with that. That we're going to start including these sort of random details in the way we're writing fiction. I mean, I'm just saying this, that's a big thing to believe. I mean, I, I just think if we looked at that honestly, I don't, I don't know if that's like a compelling argument. I mean, I think if we just look at that, we would have to say that no, it didn't happen that way. That, that those eyewitness accounts have the random details in there. So part of what's happening in this story, is, and, and as we see these little random little incidents, they, he's asleep on the cushion, he's in the stern. Other boats were with him. He didn't shave that day. What we're seeing here are these random details that, listen, they authenticate that this story actually happened. That there was a group of people who were, who were there in a boat. The boat was about to capsize. They were all about to die. And Jesus rose up out of a slumber. He looked at the wind and the water and said, quiet, and it calmed down. Those little details in this story are reminding us of, listen, this isn't a legend. Like that sort of power actually exists. Like that actually happened. Can I tell you why that's important for all of us? If this story is actually going to be meaningful and impactful and actually change the way we operate, if it's going to have that sort of an impact on us, we've got to believe that it's real. Like it's actually got to be a real story. Like Jesus actually has to have that sort of power that can do that sort of thing. And here's the first thing Mark wants us to know is it's legit. Like this thing actually happened. Like this, it was an eyewitness. We saw this go down. This is what Mark wants us to know. So first of all, we know this, that this man, this is a man with real power. Here's the second thing we know, is that this is a man with unmatched power. Unmatched power. So read again with me, starting in verse 35. Unmatched power. Verse 35 says this, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And then it says this, And a great windstorm arose. Now let me give you just the quick backstory of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was almost 700 feet below sea level. Around the Sea of Galilee, you have huge mountains that just a few miles to the north, those mountains reach 10,000 feet high. So you have a very low spot, Sea of Galilee, 800 feet below, huge mountains all around. It's like the perfect storm for big storms. This, this is the scenario that you have laid out. So you've got this cold mountain air coming down and this warm, moist air coming up from the Sea of Galilee. And it is like the perfect scenario to create these moments where you go out onto the water, and the, the weather looks great. 
and then instantly you look up and you're in the middle of this sort of a great storm. Describing kind of the volatile nature of the Sea of Galilee, one author said it like this. The Sea of, and I love this description. The Sea of Galilee is like an enchanting woman whose moods are furiously changeable. Guys, any of us can attest to that? I love this. The Sea of Galilee is like an enchanting woman whose moods are furiously changeable. And on one particular night about which we have just read, I love this last line, the lady of the lake went berserk. And, <laughs> and this is what we see, right? The lake just went berserk. You have the, the mountain air coming down, the, the, the warm, moist air coming up, and it produces what the Bible calls here a great storm, like mega storm is the idea. Big storm, Sea of Galilee breaking out, things are crazy, and then it keeps going here. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Just put yourself in the story for a second. Don't just read it from out here, but put yourself in it. You're a person in the boat, you know, a small boat in, in in a fairly large body of water in the middle of a really large storm. And all of a sudden, the waves start crashing over the boat. The wind is just ripping through the Sea of Galilee. And you are literally scared for your life. You go, you shake Jesus. He stands up in the middle of this crazy storm, wind whipping everywhere, this rain coming down, lightning, thunder. The whole thing is going on. And he stands up and he rebukes the storm. He says two Greek words, peace, be still. And it actually obeyed him. It actually did what he said. Can you just imagine that sort of a moment? You put yourself in that. So now, and and see both of the details of this. First he says, peace be still. And and, you know, the the calm happens. And it says the the wind calmed and and the the water calmed. I mean, so see, see that. So when he says, peace be still, the wind instantly was gone. The storm instantly died. But it's not just the, the, the wind. You know, if you could think of like what would happen if wind is howling for a good time in a body of water, you've got rough seas. And that would last for, for maybe hours even after the wind had died down. So in an instant, you have the wind that calms. And in the same moment, the sea that would be rough for hours normally, as cl- like so clear that you could see your reflection in, you know, in the water. You see what's happening here? This is a miraculous moment. Jesus just flexed his muscle in front of a storm. Maybe you can think of it this way, like how one guy said it. We're seeing in this story that there is no such thing as Mother Nature, only Father God, right? That this is what we're seeing here. uh, Laura and I were watching the news this last week, and there was a report on, I think it was Channel 4 or 8, I can't remember which one, but there was a report of this lady. They were celebrating this lady's 110th birthday. Now that's something to achieve right there, isn't it? I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I want 110 birds. I, I don't know. That's a lot of, that's a lot. There's a lot that comes with that. But they're celebrating this, this lady's birthday. And they were reminiscing on 
her life now and what she knows about the world and the, the world that she was born into in roughly 1900. And can you just think about how much different the world was then as opposed to now? There have been some major advancements over the last 110 years. So if you were born in 1900, you could not have fathomed that there would be a man walk on the moon. You could not have fathomed that we would send some satellite to Mars that would take pictures and send those digital pictures back to us. In 1900, you could not have fathomed that hundreds of people could get on a really heavy metal object and somehow that heavy metal object would start running down a runway, take off, and could fly them safely anywhere around the world. I mean, there has been a lot of advancements happen, haven't there? But is it not amazing amidst of all those advancements how feeble we are in front of, of nature, the force of nature? So like, think about this, when a, when a hurricane bears down on a city, think about what you don't see. In the midst of all of our advancement, think about what you don't see. You don't see a man climb up on his roof and rebuke the hurricane and tell it to stop it. You don't see that, do you? Here's what you see us do. In the midst of all of our advancements, you see us run for cover. That's what we do. In a tsunami, you, you don't see a guy stand on the shore, look at a hundred, you know, foot tall wall of water and say, you're done. Stop. Be still. You don't see that happen, do you? No. You see people run for their life when they see that, right? You, you don't see a man when the tornado sirens go off, you don't see a man get out in his front yard and rebuke the tornado. That does not happen. You see people run for their lives when these things happen but not Jesus. He wakes up, stands up, looks at the storm, rebukes it. Peace, be still. I mean, it's almost like a father would be talking to a small child, isn't it? Except that the storm actually obeys a lot better than a small child would, right? We all know that. But it's that sort of a tone, just stop, peace, be still right now, and the storm obeys. And can you just notice this, that he doesn't use like any incantations, he doesn't like cast a spell on it. He doesn't wave a wand over. He doesn't like call down some higher power. He doesn't do any of those things. And in light of that, I love what one author says. He says, in light of him just looking at the storm, two Greek words, bam, it's done. In light of that, he says this. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying in this passage, I'm not just someone with power. I am power itself. See the difference? I mean, I'm not just someone that has a little bit of power. I am power itself. Anyone or anything that has power on this planet, that power is just on loan from me. See, this is what Jesus is saying in this moment. This is the unmatched power of Jesus that we're seeing put on display for us in Mark 4. Now, let me back up out of Mark 4 and allow this passage to kind of sit in the biblical arc, Genesis to Revelation, kind of the big picture view of how the Bible might see this story. Uh, because I think it's giving us a glimpse into what all sons and daughters of God can expect in the future in the kingdom of God. It's giving us a glimpse into that whole thing. In the Bible, the word seas or oceans, the waters, it always has this negative connotation to it of chaos, of wildness, of rebellion. Okay, so, so in the Bible, seas, 
are a metaphor for those words, wildness, chaos, rebellion, those sorts of things. This is why in Revelation 21, when we see this picture of the new heaven and the new earth dropping down, coming, you know, down into earth, when we see that picture coming down, uh, the Bible says this, and the seas will be no more. Now, if you're like the guy who loves the beach and you love fishing and you love all that, you're probably thinking this, are you telling me heaven's got no water in it? Heaven's got no ocean? There's no fishing? There's no any of that in heaven? I don't think that's what Revelation 21 is saying. I think there will be all of that in heaven. So I don't think that's the point of Revelation 21. Revelation 21, when it says the seas will be no more, it's talking in metaphorical terms about what the sea represents. See, when it says the seas will be no more, it's really saying this, that there will be no more chaos. There will be no more storms like this. There will be no more rebellion. All the chaos will be crushed. All the rebellion will be subdued. That's what we can expect in the kingdom of God. See, it's a way of saying this. Jesus is saying this. That right now, you know what life on earth is? It's life in the boat in the middle of the sea of Galilee with a storm going crazy. That's life for all of us. But you know what the kingdom of God is going to be like one day? Do do you remember that moment where Jesus says, peace be still, and you could look over the boat and see your face in the reflection? That's what's coming. That's what's coming. That there's going to be a day where all chaos goes away, where all of these storms of our life go away, where all of the problems of life go away and everything is stilled. Everything is brought under submission to Jesus. Anybody else ready for some of that? I mean, I'm ready for that picture to come out. So let me just press this down really quickly and then we'll keep moving here. You know, when I I think about um, life in a fallen world, there's none of us that are going to escape that. You know, I I think this story in Mark 4 is a way of seeing our life, that we're all on the boat of life and we're all in the midst of storms. And some of our storms in this room, like right now, may be the storms of like financial issues, financial storms. For some of us, it's relational storms. For some of us, it's the storm of loss and disappointment. I mean, there's a million of these storms that, that overtake us in the middle of life in a fallen world. And you know, there's a real tendency for us to feel like in those moments when our boat is just getting ripped to shreds by that storm, it's really easy for us to feel like we are totally at the mercy of this storm. And what this, what this passage is trying to teach us this morning is that really your storm is at the mercy of Jesus. The storm does not have infinite power. That Jesus has infinite power. That Jesus is the only one who has this sort of unmatched power where he can look at any storm in your life and say this about it. Peace, be still, and it obeys like a small child. That's the sort of infinite, unmatched power that Jesus has. So that's the second thing we learned, that this, this is a man with unmatched power. Here's the third thing that this is a man with untamable power, untamable. And this is where it gets pretty interesting. Let's read again uh, in verse 35. It says this, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in, in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But 
where's Jesus? But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And look at verse 41. And they were filled with a great fear. Now, I think it's interesting just on the surface that they were afraid while they were in the middle of the storm, but they were terrified after Jesus had calmed the storm. That's just an interesting thing to observe there. So let me try to dig into that and poke around there. So let's just get back into the story. What's happening here? You've got to put yourself in this thing, right? right? You're in the boat and this great storm surprises you. It's ripping through the Sea of Galilee. It's capsizing your boat. You are bailing water out of the boat, but it's coming in faster than you can get it out. And you come to this moment where you realize we are about to die. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, but if you have, you know that is a sobering moment where you actually look at life and where you are and think, this could be it. I mean, this could, it could be over right now. And they panic. I mean, they're trying to figure out what to do. And then they have this thought, well, where is Jesus? And this is when they, they realize he is below deck here. He is he, he's below, he's in the stern, and he's asleep while we're about to die. And they run to him, wake him up, and this is their word. And it's really less of a question than it is an accusation. Teacher, Jesus, the one who could do something about this probably, you, do you not even care for us that we're about to die in here? Now, when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, there are many times when I read the stories contained in those uh, four books. And I think, especially when it comes to the disciples, when I read the story of what they just did, and I kind of roll my eyes thinking, these guys are absolute idiots. Wait, what is wrong with them? But this is not one of those stories. This is one of those moments where I look at them, and rather than kind of shaking my head at them, I can totally sympathize with them. If I were in the boat that night, I think I would have felt the exact same way. I'm about to die and I realize while I'm about to die that Jesus is asleep? Are you serious? Is that really how this thing is going down? We're, we're about to die and Jesus is, is sleeping on a, on a cushion. That, that's, how, that, that's how this is going. He's asleep, we die. And listen, th these are the sort of emotional questions like, Jesus, but don't you care for me? These are the sort of emotional questions that I think I would have been asking in the middle of that boat. And here's the reason why I think I would have been asking it back then is because I see that when my life finds itself in the middle of a storm, I'm really prone to ask them now. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you do too. That these are the sort of emotional questions that every one of us in the midst of life's storms feels inside of us. Like Jesus, what is going on? I mean, don't, don't you care? Are you asleep while this is happening? Are you just totally unaware that my life's got all these problems? You could probably do something about it. Are you just unaware of what's happening? Like those questions plague us all in the midst of life in a fallen world when life is just not going the way we want it to go. We can all relate to those questions. 
So, so what's happening here? If I were just to try to put it simply, here's how, here's how I would describe it. The disciples have a way of looking at life, a way of interpreting life. They have an equation that for them is trying to make sense of life. And here is their equation. Okay, disciples, equation for life goes like this. Jesus is all-powerful, plus he cares for us, so that equals we should really not be in the midst of storms like this. We see in the equation, Jesus is all-powerful, plus he cares, plus, and that equals life shouldn't have moments like this. We should be void of storms like this in our life. Like if Jesus is all powerful and he cares for us and we're following Jesus, that, that should really mean that maybe our lives have some little problems, but big problems should be gone. There should be no more big problems. Like if Jesus cares for us and he's all powerful, that should exclude storms from our life. This is, this is their equation, how they, how they kind of work their life out. That if Jesus really loves us and he cares for us, then of course we wouldn't have these bad things happening to us. Now, let me, let me just take one caveat before we go any deeper into this and, and say this. And, and the reason we need to take a caveat is because the prosperity gospel is alive and well in the world today. The prosperity gospel goes just like that. Jesus loves us, or, or Jesus is all powerful. He cares for us. Therefore, your life has no storms. Therefore, your life should have no problems. Therefore, your financial problems go away. Therefore, stormless life. That's prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel would take this same passage and I think teach it much differently. They would take this passage and I think they would teach it like this. So when you're in the middle of life storms, what you really need to do is you need to go over and shake Jesus up with enough faith. Shake him up. And you get him to do something. You get him to stand up and rebuke your storm. So you go stir him up with enough faith and now your financial storm, it goes away. You stir him up with enough faith and your relational storm goes away. You stir him up with enough faith and your marriage problems disappear. Your parenting problems disappear. Your job problems disappear. You know, that relational issue you have with that guy, it's all gone. But can I just say, that is not what this passage is trying to teach. It's not trying to teach you that if you can just get Jesus up, that he is always going to, to calm the storm in your, you know, temporal storm in your life. That is not the point of the story. The, the feel of the story, the thing that you should be feeling as you read this goes like this. That the disciples are about to drown in the boat. They are panicking. Their life is about to come to an end. And where is Jesus? Sleeping. How does that work? What is the, I mean, how, if Jesus loves us and cares for us, how does that, how does these things fit together? So here's the problem in, the, in this story. Is the disciples have a wrong equation for life. All powerful, he cares, no storms. And Jesus is, is trying to, to reform, reorient the way they see life. He's giving them a new equation. See, Jesus' equation in this parable or in this story goes like this. I am all-powerful. That, that's for sure. I am all-powerful. I do care. I do love you. And that equals, I still allow storms in your life. And we need to just be super clear on this. Jesus is saying here, I am all-powerful. I could stop it in an instant. I could. I am all-powerful. I've got the power to do that. I do care for you. But those two things equal 
I still allow storms in your life. Like those three things aren't incompatible. That they work together. They are compatible. They all fit in Jesus' equation for how we are to see life. That he is all-powerful, that, that he does care, and that storms in our life are still going to exist. Here recently, I was uh, exposed to a story of Elizabeth Elliot. She was the, the, she's an author, and she was also the wife of Jim Elliot, the missionary that died in Ecuador years ago. And she tells this story about seeing a shepherd dealing with his sheep. And it was an interesting uh, kind of a, a situation where the, the sheep were in a particular area and climate where there were bugs that if they started biting these sheep could really harm them and or even kill them. So you've got some serious bug problems. And so the shepherd would have to take these sheep do whatever he has to do to pick them up and subdue them and throw them into a large vat full of insecticide and absolutely submerge them in the vat. And then she's making interesting parallels. Like, so, so think about that moment. <coughs> and it's the parallel of like thinking about how does the sheep respond to that? Like if, if you put yourself in the, in the sheep's shoes for a second, then what do you do when, when a guy, a shepherd, like your shepherd, comes to you, he throws you down, picks you up, and then he throws you into that vat of whatever it is and, and tries to drown you in it. See, I think if you could be the sheep for a second, and if you actually kind of had a mind and like a voice to talk, you would be saying this, what is going on here? I mean, shepherd, you're supposed to love me and you're throwing me in that you're, try, you're, you're trying to kill me. You're about to drown me. What are you doing? And, and do you see that if you're talking from a shepherd's point of view, that that is impossible to explain to the sheep why it is necessary that you subdue him, that you pick him up, and you submerge him in the insecticide. The sheep doesn't have the ability to comprehend all that. He doesn't have the mind to take all of that in. But you know what? Although the shepherd can't explain it to him, do you know what the shepherd can still do for the sheep? Can still love him. And you know what, loving, lo what love looks like, even when you can't explain the reasons for what you're doing? What love looks like if you're the shepherd is you subdue the sheep, you tie him up, you do whatever you have to do to get him under your control, and you throw him in the vat of insecticide, and you make him feel like he is going to drown as you submerge him. And can we just see that would be a loving thing from the shepherd, although we can't explain it? Okay, now transfer that over. And I think we're starting to see some of the issue in this story. That if you think about a sheep's mind and the shepherd and the distance between those two, wouldn't we all say that the distance between our finite minds and the mind of God Almighty is at least that far? Is at least that far? So, so wouldn't, we, wouldn't we have to just take a step back and, and say at some level that there are going to be moments in our life where Jesus being all-powerful and caring for us, both of those things, Jesus loving us, caring for us, and being all-powerful, where our God, Almighty Jesus, is going to take his sheep that he really loves like you and I, and he is going to do things with our life that we would never plan Never, never predict, never want, never ask for, but are absolutely needed for us. And in those moments, it's going to be an expression of love by Jesus, although we could never understand it. 
Can, can we just see how that would play out here? See, it's the, it's the biblical idea of providence. That there are times where even though God is all-powerful and loves us, He allows us to go through storms in our life. And He does that all for good endings. That the end of that thing is good, but the temporal part of that is terrible. If you need to see evidence of this, just think about our man Joseph. Do you remember that, that guy in Genesis? We, we spent some time with him about a year ago. His brothers sell him to slavery. He's bought by a guy named Potiphar. He's falsely accused and thrown in a prison for years. And that painful pathway, he had never picked that pathway, but that painful pathway was God's plan to get him to second command in all of Egypt, where he would be the person who preserved the people of Israel and the plan of God in the world. But he would never have picked that. He would never have chose that. God put him in the insecticide, left him in there, felt like he was drowning to pull him up to good things down the road. Can, can we just see that that is a part of how God works with us? That him being all-powerful and all-knowing and actually loving us, that there are going to be moments in our life where he throws us into that insecticide. It's going to feel like we're drowning. Our life is coming apart at the hinges. It's going to feel like that. And all the while, God is saying, you're going to have to trust me that this ends good. That there is a day where I will make up for every tear that you cry in this moment. That that day's coming. See, what's really happening in this story is that the disciples, their, their equation, all-powerful, he cares, equals no storms, was really an expression of them wanting to tame Jesus' power. See, what, what was really going on is they're looking at his power and saying this, since you love me, let's just go ahead and get on the same terms here. Let's make sure you understand that this is what I want in life. And let's make sure your power gets used for my plan in life. See, what's really happening, the, the real problem in this story is that they had a plan and they wanted to use Jesus' power to, to accomplish their plan. See, they wanted, they wanted Jesus to be tameable. So I'll follow you, but now you play by my rules and you do what I want. But can we just see that what this story is teaching us? That Jesus is not tameable. He's not tameable. He doesn't play by your rules. He doesn't play by my little plans. I, when we look down the road and, and we see, uh, you know, by 40 we'll be there, 50 there, we'll have this accomplished now, we'll, this kind of timeline, this is fine, this is how all this thing will work together. We, we kind of make our plan and Jesus is like, well, maybe that's not my plan. And, and I'm not going to be tamed in, into your little game of, of me using my power to accomplish your little plan. Like my power is untamable. My power can't be coerced or manipulated for your ends. My power is going to accomplish my purposes. And you get to be invited into that. And that's got great things for you. It's good for you down at the end of the road. But I just want you to know Jesus is saying, it's not tameable. Like I, I don't fit into your little, your little boxes and your little plans for life. I've got a great big plan and you fit into that. See, this is really what's going on here is that the disciples are having their, their view of the power of Jesus totally reoriented from, I'm going to use it for my ends to accomplish what I think I want in life, to Jesus saying, no, that's not the game we play. That it's about my plans and my purposes and my power is going to accomplish that. It reminds me of the story in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm reading this right now to, to our kids. 
And so in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is this story. And by the way, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote it. It's kind of a big metaphor for the kingdom of God. And so Aslan is the, uh, he's a lion in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's kind of the Jesus-like person or figure in it. And so there's this point when Lucy, one of the little girls, asks Mr. Beaver. And she says this, is, is Aslan safe? And the beaver looks back at her and says, safe? Who said anything about safe? No, he's not safe. And then, she, then he says this, Mr. Beaver, but he's good and he's the king. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing us here. If, if you came into life with Jesus, following Jesus, expecting your life to go as planned for you, that is not the Jesus that you should have signed. Like, Jesus is going to be really disappointing for you. Like, he is not safe in that regard. Like, he, he, he is King Jesus who is all-powerful. And when you get into kind of the, the rhythm of following Jesus, when you enter into that thing, all, all, you know, all bets are off. Jesus has got his plan. And listen, here's what we can know about the plan and purposes of Jesus. It ends great. Read Revelation 21. The, in the end, every temporal tear that you cry is going to be turned into eternal joy. That's what the Bible teaches us. So in the end, that plan goes great. But in the meantime, there are going to be moments where Jesus grabs you, throws you into that insecticide, and all of that is going to be an expression of love for you. Now, let me, let me just stop here and uh, try to just gently encourage some of us in the room that we have been in the middle of really difficult storms. That right now in your life, it literally feels like things have just been ripped apart. And here's what I know about these moments for all of us, is those emotional questions like, does Jesus really care for me? Does he really if he loved me, would this really be happening? Can, can I just remind you that Jesus loving you and really bad things happening are compatible? That those, those things fit together. Now, I want to remind you, like right now in this moment, that just because you're in the middle of the storm doesn't mean that there is a lack of concern for you, from God to you, a lack of love for you, a lack of affection for you it likely means as like evidence and proof that there is affection and love for you. So last, last piece of this. <clears throat> so number three, we learned that it's untamable, this power. And number four, we learned that this is a man with a loving power. So it's not just an untamable, unmatched power, that this power of Jesus is actually a loving, affectionate power. So let me, let me give you two scenarios really briefly. Scenario number one, you walk into the doctor's office this week and the doctor looks at you and says, we've got a massive problem. You're very, very sick. You've got cancer and you're likely going to live less than a year. This is a very aggressive cancer. It's bad news for you. And I want you to imagine somebody walking up beside you and saying, but no, listen, I've got news for you. God is all powerful. He is sovereign. He is unmatched in his power. He, I mean, it controls it all. Every cancer cell on the planet, he has in his hands. He is all-powerful, dominant, all of that. If somebody were to come to me and say that, I would look back at them and say, so what? How, how, does, that, how does that bring any comfort to me in this moment? The fact that he's sovereign, all-powerful, all of these things. 
Now, I want you to imagine scenario number two, where the same doctor comes out, gets the same report, but this time a person says this to you. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God controls every cancer cell on the planet, in the universe. There is nothing outside of his control. This is the God of the scriptures. But then they say this, but here is the good news of the gospel right now in this moment. That all-powerful God of the Bible dominant in the universe, that all-powerful God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has now pledged himself to be a father for you. So now all of that strong might, all of that power, you can know this, that that is being leveraged for your good in every moment, even moments like this that seem as daunting as cancer. Do you see the difference in those two things? See, the first scenario is, you know, God is all-powerful. The second scenario is God is all-powerful. And because of Jesus, if you put your faith in him, he loves you like a son. Like he would never put you into the vat unless it's for your good. See, the only way we can endure the storms of life, the only way is to know with absolute certainty that God actually loves us that he actually does care for us in the moments of storms. Now, the question is, how do we know that? Let me answer it, and then we're done. How do we know that God loves us out of this story? Commentators are really quick to pick up on this story in Mark 4 and the famous Old Testament story of Jonah have a lot of similarities in the language that they use. So let me kind of run down through some of these similarities in both Jonah and Jesus. Both of these stories take place in a boat. So in both of them, both of the boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storms in both stories are almost identical. It's a great storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep in the boat. The sailors, in both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we are going to die. Both of them said that. And in both stories, there was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. So in both stories, all of those things are the same. Now there's one glaring difference on the surface that it seems like, you know, separate the two stories. In Jonah, here's how the story progresses. The story, you know, the the sailors wake Jonah up and Jonah looks at them and says, yep, I'm caught, we're in trouble. The only way you will live is if I die, Jonah says. The only way for you to be saved is for you to throw me into the storm. And if you know the story, they throw him into the storm and the sea was calmed. Now it looks like on the surface when you read Mark 4, you're like, well, of course that's not in the story. But we need to ask the question, is it? And and here's what we find when we back out of Mark 4 and we start to take in the gospels and the life of Jesus as a whole. Here's what we find, that maybe it is in the story. It's interesting in, in Matthew chapter 12, There's this moment where Jesus says, essentially, I am the true and greater Jonah. He was a sign that pointed to me. I am the the true and, and greater Jonah. I am the one he's saying. I am the one who ultimately was thrown into the storm. And we're not talking about some temporal little storm. We're talking about the storm. He's talking about the storm that could actually sink every one of us in the room. The storm of the eternal wrath and fury of God over our sin. 
Jesus is saying this in this story. I am the greater Jonah who on the cross, I willingly endured the storm. I willingly jumped into the storm. I was crushed in the storm of God's fury and wrath so that you could be spared. I sunk in the, in the fury and storm of God's anger and wrath over your sin. I sunk so that you could make it, so that you could swim I took it all so that you wouldn't have to take it. I took the storm so that you wouldn't have to take the storm. This is what we're seeing in this story. If you ever want to just know how much does God love us, look at the cross. That's our evidence. That's our proof of it. If you need evidence in the midst of suffering, in the midst of storms in your life, that God has not abandoned you, God has not left you, that God is for you and that God is with you, all you need to do is look at the cross of Christ. See, and it's an argument for the greater to the lesser. If Jesus did not abandon you in the storm of God's fury over sin, if he willingly jumped into that storm so that you could survive, so that you could make it, if he willingly did that, how much more should we be convinced in our little temporal storms in the here and now that Jesus would never abandon us, that Jesus does love us, that he does care for us? Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you a second just to allow the Spirit of God to settle over you the things that would be most helpful. And I want to be diligent to end this sermon where the story in Mark 4 ends. The last two verses say this. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? And Mark's answer is this is God Almighty. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the only one who can redeem and rescue you from sin the only one that can save you from the storm of God's wrath, that's who this is. And there are some of us that you came in this morning and you're skeptical, you've kind of been on the outside and and, and you're just asking questions. Is this legit? Like, is this this real? Like, is this? I mean, can I just plead with you this morning that if you're kicking the tires on Jesus, And maybe this would be the morning where you actually meet Jesus and give your life to Jesus. Like the good news of the gospel is that he promises to save you right now in this moment. So if there's never been this moment where you've looked up to God and you said, God, here is my life. Here I am, all of me, good, bad, all of it. Here I am. I'm trusting the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to save me, to make me right with you. So, so will you rescue me? The great news of the gospel is like right now in this moment, God will do that. God will do that. And so if, if you're here this morning and that's never happened, you know, I have no idea how you got here today, but I can promise you this. 
it was by divine appointment that God arranged these set of circumstances for you to be here right now, for you to hear this thing, that God's arms are wide open to you in Jesus. Man, run to Jesus. Trust Jesus as your Savior, and God will save you. And I pray that for those who, who are wrestling with that, this would be the moment in your life where you step across the line of faith, surrendering all that you are, all that you have to Jesus. And for those that are Christians in the room, here, here, is, my, here is my hope for you. That this idea of God being all-powerful and at the same time being loving, that both of those two ideas would get out of the theoretical and out of the abstract and they would sink down into the deepest places of your soul. I mean, they would get into your bones, you believe them so much. That God not only is all-powerful, but that sovereign God of the universe loves me because I'm in Jesus, has adopted me, brought, brought me into his family. I mean, he looks at me like a son, like a daughter. He loves me like that. That that would be down at the deepest places of your bones. And, and do you want to know, do you want to know that, that kind of the thing that's, that, that shows you if it's theoretical or if it's deep down in your soul is to look Look how you respond to storms in your life. See, when it's theoretical, when it's abstract, we respond like the disciples did here. We respond with panic and fear when storms come, when life doesn't go the way we want it to go. We, we freak out, panic, oh no, anxiety, worry, just riddles our life when it's, when it's theory and abstract. But when it seeps down deep into our heart, in the middle of storms that are raging all around us, we have this eerie inner peace, this strange calmness, this abnormal poise that we get to walk through life with. Man, I pray that for us. Pray that for us. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.